Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Anne? Good, good. So, what do we have for today? So, um, I was really excited to see um, that the revised ABM protocol called, nicknamed the Going Home Protocol, which is actually guidelines for hospital discharge of the breastfeeding term newborn and mother, uh-huh. um, came out uh, again last month in the um, in the breastfeeding medicine journal, and I was excited to talk about it um, with you so that our listeners could hear about it. It's a, I think it's a great protocol. Great. Let's go for it. Um, so um, this has been published by Amy Evans, Kathleen Marinelli, and Julie Scott Taylor, and it is essentially um, 13 clinical guidelines that relate to Um, the needs of the mother and infant at the time of discharge from the hospital. And we all know that uh, attention being given to how well breastfeeding is going and to supporting it at that time is critical to ensuring successful long-term breastfeeding. So I thought that we could just, I'll sort of read off um, a little summary of each of the 13 guidelines and then you and I could talk about any thoughts we have that other people um, that we thought other people might like to hear. Sounds good. So um, the first one has to do with assessment and essentially says that a health professional trained in formal assessment of breastfeeding should perform and document an assessment of breastfeeding effectiveness at least once during the last eight hours preceding discharge of the mother and infant. And it goes on to say that prior to discharge, breastfeeding should be assessed every eight to 12 hours um, and this includes position, latch, milk transfer, evidence of clinical jaundice, um, amount of stool and urine, stool color and transition, um, and any uric acid crystals um, in the baby's urine, as well as baby's weight and percent of weight loss. Um, but that, that the weight loss doesn't necessarily need to be checked frequently and gives the example of how um, in Australia, it's checked at birth and then at discharge or of day three of life, whichever comes first. Oh, that's interesting. And, um, hmm. mm-hmm. and uh, it also emphasizes the fact that any concerns raised by the mother, such as nipple pain, inability to hand express, um, perception of inadequate supply, um, and perceived need to supplement need to be addressed at that time. Mm-hmm. It um, says it's important to ask detailed questions, and I find this to be super important because many mothers 
don't necessarily bring up concerns unless they're directly questioned. You know, I'm sure you've had the experience of saying, how's breastfeeding going? It's sort of an introduction and people going fine. And then when you ask them specifics, there's a whole bunch of problems that you wouldn't have found out if you hadn't dug deeper. Right. Sometimes I think they don't know even what to say about it. They'd say, it's going. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's usually a bad sign when I hear that. <laughs> Yeah, and and I have to say that um, this is something that sometimes it it takes a little bit of digging, and so I have gotten in the habit in a hospital of using this shortcut, which is sort of like the pain scale, but how well is breastfeeding going on a scale of 0 to 10, um, and then, you know, sort of similar things of, you know, we've told you that the this is all from sort of motivational interviewing. People have told you exclusive breastfeeding is um, important for your health and your baby. How likely on a scale of 0 to 10 are you that you're going, that you're planning to do that? And if they score high, saying how confident are you that, that, that you're going to achieve your goal? And it can be so amazing to hear somebody say, I really want to, but then find their confidence as low. And it can help you sort of get to the point of like something's wrong. Right. Something's worrying her. Right. Um, right. Absolutely. So that's, that's sort of a shortcut I've been using. That's a good, yeah, a good strategy. Um, so the only other thing that I thought I wanted to to touch on um, also about this is that, you know, I when in reading this whole protocol, everything seems super straightforward. You know, if you've done, if you're comfortable with lactation, you're like, oh, of course they're going to do all those things. But at the same time reading it, I was like, wow, if we could just have every baby leaving the hospital have all of those things I just mentioned documented, meaning somebody actually thought about them, that would be a huge change from what's right. happening now in most in most hospitals. Right. Uh, because yeah. when we force it to be documented, a lot a lot more gets done in this area. Yes. And that's where electronic medical records can be helpful so that if we if you have a breastfeeding um, knowledgeable provider who's part of developing like the templates for the electronic medical record, um, those questions can just be blown right in. And then guess what? They have to answer the questions because it's in their template. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's been interesting working on EMR implementation um, how I've learned that, you know, some questions are they're just there hanging out on the page, and then there are other questions that they're gatekeeper questions. This question has to be filled in or it won't let you close. It won't let you click out to the next screen. Yeah, the hard stops. So, yeah. yeah, hard stops. And so we've been doing that with, um, like, all sorts of things, trying to, to force people to do things that, that they should be doing. Yeah, that's great. And number two says... Um, Prior to discharge, anticipation of breastfeeding problems should be assessed. And any problems with breastfeeding observed by staff or raised by the mother um, should be attended to and documented in the record. This includes um, recognition and treatment of possible ankyloglossia. And then a plan of action that includes follow-up of the problem after discharge must be in place. And there needs to be coordinated communication between obstetric and pediatric providers. And this is also like, yeah, of course, we need to do these things. Absolutely. But it doesn't happen that often. Right. 
even things like, I think one of the problems, especially in electronic medical records, is making sure PEDS is looking at the OB record, um, you know, going into the chart to look at that because they may not realize that mom had a breast reduction. Um, you know, that, I think that's one of the things that I'm, that is scary, but it's one of those really germane problems that, that set an example of where the communication can really fall apart. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And in this um, number two guideline, there's a really extensive list of maternal risk factors and infant risk factors for lactation problems. And so for anybody who's um, learning about breastfeeding or even, you know, if you've got a a challenging case and you just want to like review, okay, a differential diagnosis, what are, you know, oh, I didn't ask about breast surgery or history of infertility or, you know, 20 other things. It's a great list to glance at. Good. I'm not yeah. going to go through all of them here, but I think um, like every time I read a clinical protocol from ABM, when I was rereading this, I was like, wow, this is great. Why haven't I read them all yet? <laughs> um, number three says physicians and all other staff should encourage the mother to breastfeed exclusively for the first six months and to continue breastfeeding through at least the first year and preferably to two years of life and beyond. It goes on to say, you know, sort of where this recommendation comes from and the WHO and different international standards, um, but also touches on the fact that special counseling is needed for mothers planning to return to school or outside employment um, relatively soon or even later. Just this idea that... um, people sometimes choose not to exclusively breastfeed because of a fear of having to do some future thing that's going to keep them from their baby. And so addressing this in the early period, I think, is really important. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Number four says um, families will benefit from appropriate non-commercial educational materials, discharge packs um, containing infant formula, as well as other um, advertising materials is um, discouraged and they should not be distributed. And there's good evidence that shows that that is detrimental to breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Um, five is breastfeeding mothers and appropriate others, like partners, um, grandmothers, can benefit from, and this is the keyword, simplified anticipatory guidance prior to discharge. And it goes through some topics um, like prevention of engorgement, interpretation of infant cues, um, indicators of adequate intake, you know, really understanding what to expect in terms of stool from a baby, um, sleep patterns, maternal medication, and um, excessive jaundice, as well as it goes a little bit into the use of pacifiers really is best delayed to three or four weeks when um, breastfeeding is well established. But the, the first three I mentioned, encouragement, feeding cues, and assessing intake from the stool, I think are the three that are the just a huge, huge thing. Yeah, those are, yeah. And I would even say number one is encouragement. <laughs> because that's yeah. when they get the, that's when the babies refuse to nurse and everyone's crying and then oh, mom yeah. loses their supply. That's like, that is so preventable. Oh. It is, and that goes back to the first one, which said, you know, there needs to be documentation that mom was taught to hand express before she left the hospital. Right. And my belief that if you have to document something, you have to do it. 
And so, you know, I had two kids, and my first one was no longer uh, a few months old when I learned what hand expression was. Right. <laughs> it's just, just typical. People aren't really learning hand expression in most um facilities where births occur in this country. No, they're not. And I see people in my breastfeeding clinic. I mean, the people I see in my breastfeeding clinic gave birth at a baby-friendly hospital, and many of them have no idea about hand expression. Yeah. And then the last thing in that guidance section is uh, making sure that um, families have follow-up contact information um, where they can get help. Right. Oh, yes. Oh, I think I skipped ahead a little bit. So the um, <laughs> number six is really saying that every mom should learn hand expression and for all the reasons that we just went over. Mm-hmm. And number seven is um, that everybody should be provided with names and numbers of people who can provide assistance, preferably on a 24-hour basis. And then um, number eight is every breastfeeding mother should be provided with lists of local peer support groups. And I think that that is maybe not the first few days you're home, but going into the first weeks really can make a huge difference for um, the duration of breastfeeding. Right. Um, Number nine is if a mom is planning to return to school or outside employment, um, that she can benefit from additional information. Um, And while I agree completely, I think that For most people, unless this is a big concern that's causing them to hesitate starting exclusive breastfeeding, I almost always tell moms, we'll talk about that after three or four weeks of breastfeeding. I try not to start telling them about pumping and things like that until they've gotten through the first few weeks of breastfeeding is well established. Yeah, because they're just so overwhelmed. I mean, they can't absorb all that information early on, right? No, it's just too much. Right. Um, number 10 is having to do with when uh, follow-up should be after um, babies leave the hospital. So it says that um, in countries where discharge is common within 72 hours after the birth, appointments um, for the baby should be within 48 to 72 hours after discharge. And separate from that, it says appointments where breastfeeding can be viewed should be made prior to discharge um, for an office or home visit within three to five days of age of the baby. And so I think that in my dream world, the baby would be, um, breastfeeding would be observed in the medical home at that first visit within two or three days of discharge. But they're making the point here to say that if if that's not going to happen at that visit, they need to have a visit where breastfeeding is physically observed and I cannot agree more with that. Yeah. Yeah, it'll take a while before we get the nation up and running in that regard. <laughs> I know. Or the world I, up uh, and running. I, have, <laughs> I have a friend who was helping to design space for a new pediatric clinic in LA and she, I said to you, you know, make a space for lactation consultant and she said, Well I was hoping we won't need it soon because all the pediatricians will be doing it and I was like, Okay, could you put a space for the lactation yeah. consultant? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but with that, but right, I mean, we don't even have it in the curriculum, we don't even have it in every curriculum yet, you know, for no. the different residents, or certainly not medical school, I mean, gosh. No, and, and this, okay, to go back, back to work, this section also says infants who leave the hospital before 48 hours of age should be seen within 24 to 48 hours after discharge. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I know I'm a fairly young pediatrician, and um, this has certainly changed over time. Um, but my attitude is that I almost always want to see the baby um, one or maybe two days after they leave the hospital. It, it could go three if it's over the weekend. But m- my experience has shown me that there isn't really any benefit on seeing them two days after they leave the hospital versus one. Almost all of them, after one night at home, have questions, and they find having the breastfeeding assessed to be helpful that next day after they've left the hospital. If the baby's really young and I see them really soon after they leave the hospital and I feel like, oh, she's, you know, the baby's still only 24 or maybe, I'm sorry, 48 or 72 hours old and the mom still hasn't really gotten her full milk supply in, I'll just see her again. I mean, I may be a little bit spoiled. Some people are like, I can't, I can't see them that often, but I find that it makes a huge difference to follow them really closely if they're first-time breastfeeding moms especially. Absolutely. And if they can't see them often, then they need to figure out a way to make sure that their safety, that the safety net is there so that if they say, well, I can't see the baby every day, then have them come in for a weight check with the nurse and come up with a protocol for your office that if the baby, you know, lost X amount of weight or, mom, you know, have the nurse do just a short, you know, a short interview with the mom and and make sure that a new red flag is addressed um, with a provider. Um, but it's it's if you don't have time, then that, then that means you need fewer patients or you need to figure out some other way. Of you need to reprioritize. Care. You need to reprioritize. I mean, right? Yeah. Or you need to. Or there has to be a backup plan. You know, if you're a primary care provider, if you're a medical home, it means you're taking care of your patients. So yeah, and um, I think that once that um, baby leaves the hospital. They need to be established as an outpatient provider's patient. So getting them there quickly and getting them seen, you know, if they are doing great, you can alter how long you're going to be before you see them back. But if they're not doing great, seeing them frequently is like, it's like magic to me. The difference, I said this to somebody I was helping very recently, the difference between my helping somebody breastfeed and another provider may just be that I say, do blah, blah, blah and come back in two days because right. that gives them the confidence to do whatever I ask them to do because they know I'm going to check the baby's weight as they wean the formula or whatever. Right, right. No, no, yeah, it's all about, you know, 99% of this is confidence for sure. I think that in some places they, um, I think every everyone's got like a different system of what they do, but hopefully if they can't see babies back, they're using a lactation consultant in the community who's checking the weight again, or, um, you know, if mom has any concerns, they know that they can call a warm line wherever it is for lactation. And so, but it would be nice if this is all happening in the medical home. Someday. But um, that comment you had about weight loss was perfect to lead into um, question 11, or criteria 11, which is um, that additional visits uh, um, for mother and infant are recommended um, even if discharge occurs at later than five days of age until clinical issues such as adequate stool and urine output um, and regaining birth weight by 10 to 14 days of age are resolved. And so it talks in here a little bit about a baby who isn't back to their birth weight by the first 10 days of life 
but who is demonstrating steady, appropriate gain for several days is probably an okay baby, but they need to have close follow-up. They don't necessarily need intervention. And so having that confidence, you know, I may be at day 11 and the baby had gone really low, so they're not yet at birth weight, but they've been gaining an ounce a day for three days. I feel very comfortable saying, okay, that's fine. You're doing good now. Maybe it wasn't before, but let's keep going. You don't need to go, oh, we've crossed the 10-day mark. Let's supplement with formula. Absolutely. Right. And then it goes into um, talking about baby exhibiting weight loss approaching 7% by five or six days of life needs to be closely monitored until weight gain is well established. Should seven or more percent of weight loss be noted after five or six days of life, um, there should be even more concern. And this is a little bit longer. I'm summarizing, but I thought it was really interesting and a great place for us to talk for a second um, because there are a few different numbers that are thrown around with weight loss. And um, I've heard them used differently in different contexts. And I think there are a few different thoughts that I have. One is what we just talked about, which is the number isn't as important as the direction that you're going. Right. And the other one is, you know, there are sometimes, sometimes you get fooled. You know, you look like maybe there is a difference in scales and you have to pay attention to the whole clinical picture. So, you know, the number may not be so great, but the baby looks great. And the story is that they pooped eight times yellow poops in the last 24, you know, other things um, besides the numbers. Sometimes we like to get really hung up on the numbers. Right. And if things, right, and if things are going really well and the number isn't there, the weight isn't where where you expect, then just reweigh them the next day and and just see if there's something wrong with the scale. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Occasionally you are looking at a baby and you're like, I just wonder if that birth weight was not really true. That's You know, everything after that was something else and I don't know I seem to remember hearing that average weight loss at the nadir for um, breastfed babies was 7% which means that half the babies are going to get down to 7% and I don't Mm -hmm. think that it's it's an emergency and so I like the way this is worded if they're approaching 7% loss we should monitor them if they have had 7 or more we should monitor them even more closely Right. Yes, I think that's great. And it's also been about five or six days. So I really liked that comment earlier about uh, in Australia, they don't even weigh them again until day three because mm-hmm. the new studies that we've seen about IV fluids um, given to moms affecting birth weight really makes me wonder about that first 12 and 24 hours. And the damage that is done to mom's confidence when we say your baby has lost weight in the first day, if we don't say, just like we expect all babies to, your baby has lost weight. Right. Totally agree. Um, Number 12 is um, talking about if mom is medically ready for discharge, but the baby is not, we should make an effort to um, keep the mom either as a patient or as a mother in residence to support exclusive breastfeeding with rooming in. And number 13 says, If mom is discharged from the hospital before the infant is discharged, like in the case of a sick infant, 
the mom should be encouraged to spend as much time as possible with the infant practicing skin-to-skin um, kangaroo care, continuing regular breastfeeding, and um, she should be encouraged to express her milk and bring it to the baby. Um, it makes the comment again that all moms should demonstrate successful expression of milk before hospital discharge. And if she's having trouble, she should be sent to um, someone skilled in the management of breastfeeding, mm-hmm. which seems like obvious, but it's just it's not always happening. So the I think the protocol is good. I want to reemphasize that this is all related to term infants. So this is really, you know, it's it's not necessarily preemies, but for for full term babies, we should be able to do these steps and have a lot greater success supporting moms. Absolutely. I think that that's great and I and I really like the fact that they included the information about uh, moms being allowed to stay because oftentimes that's an insurance issue. And if we have a, a group of physicians in this country in the United States saying, look, you know, insurances really need to be covering moms to stay because this is important for the health of the baby, um, hopefully that'll have some influence. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for bringing up that protocol. I think that's good. And I, and I also like the fact that, um, th- that you brought up uh, the list of red flags that that uh, professionals need to be thinking about in terms of moms um, who are set up, who are set up for difficulty with breastfeeding. So, and certainly with the obesity issue that we have in this country, knowing that maternal obesity, especially morbid obesity is related to a delay in lactation. Um, I'm assuming that that's on the list and um, uh, hopefully this will bring, bring up awareness about that issue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what uh, article do you want to talk about? So I want to talk about breast pumps. And I found what I thought was an interesting article in the Journal of Human Lactation. This study pertains to breast pump use in the United States. Uh, breast pumps are actually considered by the, by the Food and Drug Administration, called the FDA, as a medical device that poses minimal risk. And I did not realize that the FDA actually does regulate the use of breast pumps. I was always under the impression that they don't, but they actually do. And they do a monitoring system through their adverse event reporting system. And anyone who's interested in that, who has who has difficulties with pumps, people who are working with women who have trouble with their pumps, um, these women can be given the information about the Food and Drug Administration and go to the website, and it's very easy to find the link where a person can report an adverse event with their breast pump. So the authors of this study report that there have only been a few studies done on the adverse effects of breast pumps. They document one study that found that breast pump use is associated with an increased risk of mastitis, And other studies found that nipple pain is associated not only with certain uh, pumping techniques, but also faulty pump settings and pump parts that don't fit well. Um, In addition, there's that risk of infection when women share pumps and are not built for sharing. So we know that you and I know that what are called hospital-grade pumps, which really doesn't, hospital-grade pumps don't have an actual definition, but these are pumps that are used in hospitals that are considered multi-use pumps so that the filter is a closed system and women, when they use the pumps, they can't contaminate that filter. But the 
But the typical double electric pumps that women are buying that are three or $400, um, those are not multi-use pumps. And those can become, the filters can become infected um, with bacteria. And then when they're shared by other women, um, they can actually uh, become infected. So, so that's also has been shown in studies. So, mm-hmm. study, so studies have shown that the risk factors associated with having trouble with pumps include the type of pump, being a primip, the mother's literacy level, and certain demographics like age and education and income level. So this study looked at the risk factors associated with breast pump-related problems and injuries. So this is just like sort of a confirmatory study. The authors actually used data that was collected through the Infant Feeding Practices Study 2, which is a national study that um, collects information from um, families from late pregnancy through the baby's first year of life. And it only surveys healthy moms with healthy, with healthy term babies and near-term infants, like 35 to 37 weeks. So 844 moms answered questions about breast pump use when their babies were two, five, and seven months of age. And these moms were known to still be breastfeeding and using a breast pump at those times that they were um, asked to fill out the survey. So they were asked if they had any problems with their breast pumps, such as problems with suction, um, pain with pumping, poor seal, et cetera. And they were also asked about what kind of pump they were using. So the researchers found that 75% of the pumps that these women were using were new pumps, and about a third of them were at, were manual pumps, which I thought was interesting. And a manual pump is one that's not electric. It's just used, you know, you're just using your hand um, to um, generate the suction. Um, yeah, I uh, have to say I'm surprised how often I meet women who are separated routinely from their babies who are just using a hand pump and how important it is to ask moms in addition to are you pumping to, is it manual or electric? Right, right. And we'll talk about why that is important in this study. Um, They also asked how they learned how to use their pump. And most moms, 65%, said that they learned how to use their pump either by reading the manual or by reading um, information on the Internet or watching a video. Um, and interestingly, the majority of the moms, 62.2%, had at least one breast pump-related problem, and 14.5% had a breast pump-related injury. The top three problems with the breast pumps that these women had were, uh, number one, not being able to express enough milk, um, also taking that they complained that it took too long to express milk with the pump, and it was too uncomfortable to use the pump. And the top three breast pump-related injuries were having sore nipples, nipple injury, and a and a bruise, which you know would I guess I guess they kind of separated that out from a nipple injury, but they said a pressure bruise, so maybe that was on the areola. They found that the risk factors associated with having problems or injuries included using a battery-operated or a manual pump. Um, so there were more injuries with those versus the electric pump. Um, also, if they learned how to use the pump from non-personal sources, such as a manual, a video, or the internet, um, they had more problems. So um, they had fewer problems if they learned how to use a pump from a friend, from a health professional, from someone who could actually show them directly how to use the pump. And also, not obtaining the pump from a friend or relative, 
which is interesting because we just said that sharing pumps is not, you know, a hygienic thing to do unless it's a um, like a hand pump that doesn't have a filter. Um, other risk factors for having problems include having an emergency C-section, um, having lower breastfeeding intentions, and having early breastfeeding problems. So those are probably people that are using pumps more often. So the authors conclude that new pump users are best off learning how to use pumps by personal instruction, and women who are using manual or battery-operated pumps should be counseled on increased problems with those pumps and should be supported by teaching proper use of those particular pumps. So That is so interesting. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, so I think I, what I see happening in our country right now, because of the Affordable Care Act, mandating that insurances cover breast pumps, first of all, some of these insurance companies are covering manual pumps. So women are mm -hmm. ending up using, and this data, I, I imagine, I'm sure was collected before the Affordable Care Act has, you know, sort of been um, mm -hmm. been um, uh, integrated implemented. into implemented, right? Um, but I, but nevertheless, I think hand pumps are less expensive, and um, I, I see it as a problem as time goes on with the Affordable Care Act. And then some insurance companies are promising double electric pumps, but not until they sort of, women sort of prove the fact that they're actually successful and that they really do have the intention to breastfeed because the electric pumps are expensive. So then they end up buying, you know, simple hand pumps that not that don't may not maintain lactation as well or there's more um risk of injury because of the the difference in the nature of using those pumps. Mhm. Mm so I yeah, think Yeah, I mean there's been a lot of talk about the explosion of pump use and it's a really rich topic between the the manuals and the electrics and the qualities of the various electrics and which insurances are covering which types and right right complex yeah. yeah i think so and i think it's probably a good idea as lactation specialists that we have different hand pumps and show women directly how to use them a lot of times my patients um come to see me and they don't have their pumps with them. So, they're, mm. so I'm not able to really show them with their own pump how to use yeah. it appropriately. Yeah, so we should really be encouraging moms to bring their pumps in so we show them how to use them. And it's really interesting to me how the suction really varies. I have a little gauge that I use to test pumps. And uh -huh. um, you really can vary the pressure so dramatically um, in terms of how you use the pump and demonstrating to moms the difference in that pressure in terms of how they use the pump can be really helpful for them just to get a, just to get an idea of, um, you know, just a little tweak here and there or a little firmer pressure with their hand may really cause the pressure to jump up quite a bit and that could cause injury. Yeah, and that also makes me think of the idea of hands-on pumping. And just in case any of our listeners are not familiar with that concept, the idea that you can um, sort of use your hands really behind the glands of the breast while you're using a breast pump and apply some back pressure um, to enable the breast to empty more fully or to push out any um, areas where there's a blocked duct. Right. Um, because the baby is really the best pump and for women who have to use uh, an electric or a manual pump frequently, I think that risk of mastitis 
for sure is certainly significant. Yeah, I I have to say that in my lactation clinic, I see many women who um, have recurrent plug ducts, recurrent infections, oversupply, and sometimes, of course, undersupply, and it's just related to the pump. And some will be some will primarily pump, and then when they're ha- when they have plugs, they'll put the baby to the breast, get the plug out, and then go back to pumping again. <laughs> I think, oh, That's just so put the funny. baby to the breast more often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So women really do love their pumps, and it gives women freedom, <laughs> which is fine. But we really do need to have better we pump have technology. Better. Epidemic of uh, epidemic of pumping in yeah. this country. The other thing that you made me think of was, um, well, first of all, I think the idea you have of having people bring their pumps is a great one because um, there is a code um, for teaching pump use. It's sort of similar in primary care to teaching um, people how to use their albuterol with a spacer. So that sort of teaching you can code for and get reimbursed. Mm. And um, so I, I, you know, when I do that in clinic, I do code for it. And the other thought I had was that um, when I, where I trained at University of Florida, this awesome um, lactation consultant that we had there had made this chart of pictures of all of the different breast pumps. So that they could, moms could at least point to, this is what I have. Because it is helpful to know, you know, certainly certain breast pumps are of higher quality than others. And to know, oh, you have that one that might be part of your problem. Um, and, and also certain ones work better for, for certain people. I know a neonatologist who she said she tried three different pumps and the third one she loved, and the other two she gave to other friends of hers, and they loved those ones, but it didn't work for her. Right. Yeah, everyone's really different. And I also I also would say that the breast shields leave a lot to be desired in terms of the flexibility and sizes and shapes. Um, the, mm-hmm. Literally, I got aftermarket shields for my Medela um, pump when I was pumping my firstborn because I just it it wasn't I wasn't having good suction they weren't fitting me it was uncomfortable and I got some shields from another company that were compatible and it was like oh so yeah better. yeah yeah so that and that you know when I looked at standards for how to fit shields there are no really, really good standards so um, it's everyone's That's guess as to what yeah yeah it's everyone's guess so all right well that sounds good so um I think that we'll move on, and I want to remind everyone about our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page. So please like us. Please leave comments. Let us know other things that you would like us to cover in our podcast series. And Karen, I will talk to you in a couple weeks. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.